welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, modern Americans have plenty of assumptions about the things we eat. Some of these are that the wrong food can kill you, that the right food can keep, help you live longer, additives are unnatural, and unnatural food is unhealthy food, that we believe eating to be a matter of life or death is in part due to a man most of us have never heard of, Harvey Washington Wiley, head of the Bureau of Chemistry at the Department of Agriculture and later employed by the magazine Good Housekeeping. Wiley was an MD who became a research chemist and then an advocate of pure food who got his ideas out through the masterly use of newspapers eager for copy. You don't understand, sir, said President Theodore Roosevelt to one irate businessman complaining about Wiley. You don't understand, sir, that Dr. Wiley has the grandest political machine in the country. Jonathan Reese's new biography of Wiley, The Chemistry of Fear, Harvey Wiley's Fight for Pure Food, is not only about Wiley, but about scientific progress, the meaning of food and health, progressivism, the bureaucratic state, and that place where science and publicity meet. It's a great read, beautifully designed by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Professor of History at Colorado State University, Jonathan Reese, was previously on the podcast in episode 96, talking about the curious history of keeping things cold. Jonathan Reese, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Nice to see you again. So this is, as I said, it's a beautifully put together book. Uh, Kelly Galbraith, is the jacket designer, and I want to mention her name because she hit a home run. It's like something that Mr. Heinz up there in Pittsburgh at the time that Wiley was prowling about the halls of the Cosmos Club of the Department of Agriculture. Mr. Heinz would be proud of this cover. Um, it's designed like a sort of a box or a, a jar from 1900. It's uh, it's the ketchup label. It's the Heinz it's, ketchup label. It's the ketchup it's label, a, and I, it makes a parody you, of it. The spine is like, if you saw this in the store, you'll want to touch it because it looks like a flower label um, or something like that from the time. It's just, it's brilliantly put together. Um, and people will pick it up and they'll say, Harvey Wiley, who the is Harvey Wiley? And I'm imagining that over the last four or five years, you've been getting that a lot. So what's your elevator speech about Harvey Wiley? Well, I actually want to back up and talk okay. about the design for just a second. Is Absolutely. Okay? Uh, the book was supposed to denote a food book. Right? Yeah. Because if you're doing a biography, the normal thing to do is to stick the guy's face on the front cover. Yeah. But they said, well, it is a biography, but not a lot of people have heard of Harvey Wiley. So the first message we want to send to potential buyers is that this is a food book. So they sort of picked a food from inside the book with which to invoke on the outside. And ketchup is in the book. And ketchup the, is in the book. And the ketchup label is still very recognizable, but it's not the ketchup label. No. But the book sort of says ketchup. And because it says ketchup, you know it's a book about food. But it's also <laughs> cocoa. It looks also there's Hershey's to it. There's like, there's, there's a, there's, it's cocoa chocolate uh, colored. I mean, it's very delicious looking, the book. It, the book so looks that, very that's, edible. That's really interesting. You think it's brownish. I thought it was dark red, which well, would be, which would be what ketchup looks like uh, after Wiley comes around. Ketchup um, does not look like that. I, I if the ketchup, <laughs> if your ketchup looks like that, it's oxidized. It's the tomatoes okay, have so, been open until too long. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I, I did not have a debate with the, the, the book <laughs> on this one. However, um, however, old ketchup does look like that. It, it, it does, <laughs> but that yeah, I only know that because I was once an undergraduate. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean old ketchup as in ketchup. There. Oh, the, you mean the, like ketchup of bygone yeah. days, as my godson would say. Exactly. <laughs> ketchup a hundred years ago actually yeah. looks exactly that color. Did it um, taste more it, like that too? Because that would have been more like soy sauce better. kind of. Yeah. You know? Um, well, it's 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 the it's a funny place to start with. It with is, tomatoes. but you know, hey, this is our um, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tomatoes. Um, they used to use sort of tomato scraps and then cover it with vinegar. Sure. And it gets redder as the quality of the tomatoes increases. Um, but of course, the tomatoes are still 
preserved in, you know, about 1908, 1909. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be quite as red. Actually, ketchup gets redder and sweeter. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of catch of sugar in ketchup now as a preservative. And it used to be vinegar. And that's one of Wiley's Hi- yeah. is is sort of convincing people to come up with a new recipe, including Heinz. Uh, that would allow tomato ketchup to taste more like tomatoes. I um, I, I remember Richard Nixon, I think he used ketchup on his eggs. And I know that was a New England thing. And that makes absolutely no sense if uh, if you know only modern ketchup. But if you think of like traditional ketchups as being more like, like sort of salsa without the hot yeah. peppers, then it makes sense, you know, that that was what people were eating. Uh, but then eventually, you know, once they invent corn syrup in Clinton, Iowa, I have to say, as a former Augustana professor, I need to bet, boost up, you know, bet, big up Clinton, Iowa and a, the ADM lab or no, it wasn't ADM at the time. They introduced, introduced corn syrup into the ketchup. It changes a lot. Yeah, the uh, corn syrup, uh, 1970, if I remember right, um, it makes things sweeter and cheaper. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, I think in general, this is just a, a really good general food point, which is that food changes over time rapidly and often in unexpected ways for unexpected reasons. And the question, coming back to my, my last books, of how to preserve it becomes one of those important reasons that the recipes of, the, of things changes over time. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about where did really evolve? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this <laughs> this is like the, this is the deep philosophy. I mean, I know as historians, we're not supposed to, to pay attention to this, but there's some deep philosophy at the heart of this. It is about yeah. about food, about change over time, which is of course a lot of what modern history is about. Um, about are we what we eat? <laughs> um, right. And and Wiley is there at the heart of all this in ways which it's just stunning reading the book to see the the sort of the markers that he sets, which sometimes and we'll get to that are crazy, yeah. um, um, but they persist. Crazy things aren't supposed to persist, persist, but they do. And this is like an example of that too. But uh, to back my original question before you got off in this and very important question of like ketchup recipes is uh, who the hell is Harvey Wiley? Really? Um, Harvey Wiley was the head of the division, later the Bureau of Chemistry at the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, he was a sugar chemist originally, uh, but he becomes in charge of first inspecting and then regulating the purity of the American food supply. And from that position, uh, he becomes famous because a lot of people were very scared about what they were eating in the late 19th and early 20th century because uh, they didn't understand it anymore. It was being packaged far away. Uh, there were ingredients that were added to it that they didn't understand and Wiley tested to see whether these ingredients were healthy or not, uh, whether they were legal or not. And he got in prolonged fights with food manufacturers and government officials over what should and should not be in our food. And because of that, what I argue is that his legacy on what we eat is just simply enormous, that you can see it measured in the nature of ketchup, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, and a lot of other different foods. And you have, I'd say, admirably brief chapter headings. And so mm-hmm. in our my waypoints, so, so where I wanted to go, I was sort of riffing off of that. So I have these these very brief chapter headings. Uh, one of the, it seems to me, essential things about Wiley is that he's a Hoosier. Um, he's from Indiana. And yeah. it's amazing, as I was talking before we began, so many of these smart young guys coming to D.C., are sort of young Indiana Republican progressives. Uh, and Wiley turns out to be one of these guys. Um, so he lives a remarkably long time. This is someone who is a volunteer, an Indiana volunteer militiaman serving in Tennessee <laughs> during the Civil War. Uh, he, yeah. That's why he's buried at Arlington. So could you describe his Hoosier roots, which even extend to Purdue? Uh, so um, Wiley was an Indianan. Uh, he was born in... It might be a year or two off, uh, 1844. 
Maybe yeah. 1843. I mean, that's it's certainly the right. I think it's 1844. Yeah. He lived 86 years, so he died in 1930. Uh, he was born on a farm in far southern Indiana. Uh, he is near the river, um, but he's um, so he has some idea of what's going on around him. He experiences he uh, for the Civil War buffs. Yeah. He experiences Morgan's raid, famous raid through southern Indiana into Ohio. He he's I think he and his dad are run out to defend the house. Anyway, it happens nearby. So, um, and, um, but, but it's still rural. It's, it's, the, you know, Indiana is the West in the 1840s and 1850s, not the far West, but it's still a, a developing area. And so his ideas about food come from what he eats growing up, which is sort of a very, of a, a very standard traditional American diet. I wouldn't necessarily call it bland, but it's certainly blander than the sort of things we eat now. Yeah, and but we're weird. I mean, form his ideas as to what we should be eating, you know, 50, 60 years later when things so change a lot. What does he, I'm mean, very curious, what does he eat then? And what, what is the bland American diet of the 1860s? You know, a little bit of meat, very little sugar, very little seasoning. Uh, you eat what's in season. Um, almost none of it is, is, uh, preserved with ice cause it's, it's very hard to get. Um, it's just, it's, it's just a l very limited, uh, compared to even what you'd be able to eat 30 years later and, when and yet, commerce opens up. And yet even these guys eat a lot more meat than say people in Europe. I mean, this is one of the, even in the revolution, you can see the differences right. in, in height between American and British soldiers is partly due to higher meat uh, i would i would no, assume. I, I, I i do know that i i do know that uh research um and and it meat is not meat meat is a, a delicacy though it's not a regular mm -hmm. thing no it's uh, and of course and of course you eat much worse cuts of it until yeah. the system in the 1880s 1890s gets developed uh to send everything through chicago yeah, uh, but it's, it's very maybe the better word isn't so much bland, but he has very traditional ideas of what good food is. Mm -hmm. And he continues to eat that through the rest of his life. And as well, he grows richer, he eats much more of it, which is interesting <laughs> of itself. We'll get we'll get we'll get to that because he is also a gourmand. Uh, yes. He yeah, as and he he likes his uh, fancy vittles, as A.J. Liebling might have said, uh, fancy groceries. Um, but as long as they are within a certain, there are certain parameters in which they can be fancy. Um, so he's a Hoosier and he's Hoosier enough. He goes to Hanover college. Um, I would, I would regale people with the, the, the college song, but I don't know it. And it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's just the southernmost, uh, liberal arts college in, in like the Midwest practically and on the Ohio. And eventually he goes to Purdue, uh, to be an instructor, yes. but he's, he's at some point he's earned an MD. Um, yeah, so let's 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 do this separately. After undergraduate, he he gets an MD, which is weirdly enough not a huge deal back then. There's not a lot of, I mean, there are medical schools, but not in the Midwest. So his MD sort of consists of of going with another doctor and doing rounds in Kentucky for a few months. Mm -hmm. He never felt he had an MD, and he was referred to as Doctor Wiley for the rest of his life, which is appropriate. Um, he didn't have a PhD. He's a doctor, doctor, but at the same time, he didn't feel comfortable seeing patients and claiming to be a medical doctor, uh, except if he's talking about nutrition, uh, because that education was, was very limited. Mm -hmm. uh, he did, however, start, uh, being interested in chemistry as an undergraduate. Uh, he did, um, I think it's probably best described as more undergraduate work at Harvard in chemistry mm -hmm. because that was his area of interest. And he becomes one of the first nine professors uh, in Purdue when it opens in the early uh, 1870s. He's in charge of both chemistry and physics huh. at Purdue during the 1870s. Now those are the days. I mean, you could just get a, you yeah. know, with, with 140 credit hours, you, you get to be a professor at Purdue. Um so at, at some point he then goes to Germany and he doesn't take official. Well, it's he, again, like at Harvard, it's the sort of, he's taking courses and he's doing interesting research. So could you describe that? And, and I think it's time we can transition into, into sort of 
his scientific importance in the United States is as a pioneering sugar chemist. So we should probably ex explain what that is and how it, what he did. Well, when he was in Germany, um, um, he began to use something called a polariscope, um, which was way above my head when I started running into it and I had it explained to me. <laughs> Essentially, it is like a microscope. Um, don't explain, don't ask me to explain the exact difference, but it's used primarily at that time to study um, the sugar content of sugars, um, exactly how much there is. So actually, so what you do is you'll break down substances like, like honey and jam, and it will tell you exactly how much sugar is in it and the nature of that sugar. You can see the crystals better in mm -hmm. a polariscope. Um, so this is German technology. Uh, he uh, essentially imports them back to the United States. Uh, one for Purdue. Uh, he gets them later for the Department of Agriculture. And he studies uh, things like jams and honey to see whether or not it's adulterated or not. Um, and so you would want your sugar content of those substances to be high uh, because that would mean that it's all sugar or it's all honey. And he argues that it's not. So this is his first moment. Uh, this is the first time, I guess, in which he gets into a controversy with an industry is over yes. honey. And is it's kind of kind of characteristic because he is kind of shooting off at the lip. Um, yeah. So Wiley argues that almost all honey in the United States is adulterated. There's like a passing comment. Boom. You know. Yeah. In, in a, in a, popular science monthly article he says basically that all honey is adulterated and when you study it you will find a lot of water in honey but it turns out that water is actually kind of natural in honey um, <laughs> they need to drink water bees do yeah um that determining um the exact honey content of honey uh, remains an incredibly difficult task to this day because honey is incredibly variable. And the honey producers say, we're not doing anything to our honey. Honey is incredibly variable. It, and actually, what, what he Wiley, said was even worse. I, and Wiley, got, just, Wiley just keeps on saying, no, it's adulterated. It should be pure. And really, I think the argument I'm trying to make there is that no honey is 100% pure. He says, and, in commercial honey... This is yeah. Wiley's words. In commercial honey, which is entirely free from bee mediation, the comb yes. is made from paraffin and filled mm -hmm. with pure glucose by appropriate machinery. This honey for whiteness and beauty rivals a celebrated real white clover honey of Vermont, can, but can be sold at an immense profit of one half the price. So I read that, and you know, I'm not a great reader of English, but what I get out of that is, is that, that they're making honey in a machine somewhere. Um, yeah, so and, in a weird way, they were um, <laughs> in the sense that this is right about the time, the 1880s, when artificial hives become a thing. Uh -huh. um, again, not a beekeeper, so it's hard for me to do this in exact detail off the top of my head. But essentially, this is the first time um, if you see a modern hive, uh, you know, you can like these giant wood boxes where there's sort of slits for the combs and the bees yeah, the, sort of um, deposit everything in the middle, uh -huh. but you can lift it out and get the honey much without more killing, without killing the bees as you would have to without do with a traditional skip. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the first, the early 1880s is the first time that's beginning to debut and Wiley confuses that with, uh, with wax and, uh, adulteration. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's not. The honey is perfectly fine. It is natural, and it's not really a machine. But if you don't understand what's going on, it can seem like a machine. <laughs> um, so you know, we, uh, what they they called it the wily honey lie. The bee makers, the a, uh, apiarists. That's the right word. Yeah, <laughs> apiarists. Very good. The apiarists um, were mad at him for decades literally like decades the way that cattle, uh, cattle way cattlemen feel about oprah yeah basically yeah they were very very angry uh about it uh and uh but that you know helped jumpstart his career he was a sugar chemist at purdue that makes him sort of mildly famous 
and he's having that controversy in his first years in Washington after he's picked for the job at the Department of Agriculture. But before we go on to talk about adulteration, um, could we uh, get back to adulteration? Because adulteration is like the it is the topic of his of his life, I guess. Um, is let's talk about sugar beets because that is in a way his influence is immense um, as the a pioneer of sugar beets. So could you explain? Uh, for most people, don't realize this. Uh, we don't get our sugar from cane for the most part, unless you're very careful and particular about it. We're getting it from corn or the sugar beet. And Wiley's the guy who <coughs> really pioneers the study of the sugar beet. He is the really the founder of the American sugar beet industry. Uh, the Department of Agriculture in the late 19th century is sort of there to help farmers grow <laughs> more and better crops. And sugar beets is one of those things that everybody wanted to be a thing in the United States. Sugar beets sort of start in Germany in the early 19th century. And because sugar cane is very expensive and entirely tropical and almost completely outside the United States, Louisiana being the, the big exception to that. Um, the United States government said, we need to start a sugar beet industry. Let's have the government help. We need to and close Wiley, the sugar gap or it's a national security issue. Yeah. And Wiley is charged with figuring out how to start a, a sugar beet industry in the United States. And so there are a series of agricultural stations in different places in the United States that are sort of right where the farmers are. And he coordinates <coughs> the campaign to start growing better, more efficient sugar beets in different places across America from about California to Minnesota. And through just a whole series of tests, he figures out uh, both how to grow them, what size they should be, um, and how to more efficiently refine them um, so that sh the cost of sugar beet sugar will come down. That work isn't really perfected until World War II when the mechanical sugar beet harvester is perfected. And then it gets very, very cheap. But we go from almost no sugar beets successfully grown in America in the 1870s to a significant chunk of sugar coming, our sugar coming from sugar beets after 1900. And Wiley is almost 100% responsible for that. So remarkably enough for this, the, a person for whom food is life, the sort of the pioneer of getting more and more powerful sugar into the American diet is yeah. Harvey Wiley. That is correct. And he, you know, he's alive until 1930. He turns against sugar in general by the time that comes say, he, is, he is consistent with the rest of his philosophy that he turns against the sort of initial part of his life work. Right? Yeah. And so you see very little about this in his autobiography. In fact, I think there's nothing about it in his autobiography. Hmm. Um, but that's what most of the work he's doing um, for the Department of Agriculture in the 1880s and 1890s consists of. It's a very complicated research all across the country um, in order to get the American sugar beet industry growing. So I lied. Before we get to adulteration, I want to talk about Washington, D.C. Uh, before we start recording, yeah. I was describing the book that Jonathan should write next, which, alas, he isn't. And it's gonna, <laughs> it's premised around the idea that um, and, and, you know, if, if there's a graduate student listening to this who's living in abject terror of a thesis topic, here's one for you. Washington, D.C. is the center of scientific innovation in the American Republic in the late 19th century. Um, fill out the details and uh, send me a check. Uh, but basically, Wiley is one of a group of people that include Alexander Graham Bell, uh, uh, John Wesley Powell, um, uh, Langley, uh, the Secretary of the Smithsonian. And he is creating an institution at the Division of Chemistry, uh, which uh, it is the same as other institutions that are being created. Uh, Bell has created, believe it or not, a research lab called the Volta Laboratory. Uh, there's Gallaudet College, which is where they study uh, the deaf, uh, which actually has a lot to do with the science at the time. There's the Smithsonian, if I didn't say that already. Uh, there's the um, uh, John Wesley Powell's at the, what is it, help me, Geological Survey, which is a huge, the Bureau of Ethno Ethnography, another. And then there's the Cosmos Club. We'll get to that in a second. So Washington is filled with these scientific types 
uh, in the era just as the research university is coming to the United States. This is really important for him. He's got a lot of buddies. This is He's a very sociable guy. And he hangs out there every night he's in town at the Cosmos Club. And Which he's one of the founders of, I guess. You know, he's, he's not a founder. He's okay. an early member. Uh, but he um, runs the club. He runs their bar. He's in charge of getting, like, milk and liquor for the club for a large part of their history. Hmm. Um, when he becomes a pure food advocate, he makes sure that everyone at the Cosmos Club can eat pure food. It's really uh, interesting. It's very difficult. Research was very interesting because it's very difficult to discern the difference between his personal correspondence and his business correspondence. <laughs> because his business correspondence is with his personal correspondence. And in the files that contain his personal correspondence, it's full of business. And some of that is like, you know, ha- who gets the dairy contract for the Cosmos Club? He'll dictate that letter um, from his office because it's just all work for him. Yeah. His work was fun and his fun was work. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he walks the club for lunch every day. Um, yep. And and this is where he is getting his, his taste for fancier and fancier meals. Like I think he wrote at one point nine. His favorite kind of meal was his nine courses, I think. Yep. Um, banquets. Uh, just in, whenever he had a chance, he would go to banquets run by various food-related industries in New York or Chicago. Um, so he doesn't spend all that much time in town, but he had thought nothing of taking the train up to New York after a, a full day of work, uh, coming back and then reporting for work the next morning. <laughs> wow. You could do that then. It's be very, it's, yeah. it's very hard to do that on Amtrak these days. I have to say, um, not with any kind of regularity. So he's a clubable guy. Uh, he also, he's a, a bachelor into his sixties. I mean, he's a correct and yet he likes the ladies and the ladies seem, seem to like him. There's some, you have a funny cartoon of one of his girlfriends that did a sketch of, of, of Wiley. Um, oh, he's can a, I, can he's I talk a, about that? yeah, yeah. Can I, can I talk about that? Cause this is, this is great. Um, I'm, actually it's a little sad. It's sad and funny at the same time. So I went through Wiley's wife's papers and I think I'm probably the first Wiley uh, biographer to do that. Really? And, Yes. And she's a, dedicated to his, she's an interesting woman. Um, and then she's also dedicated to the cult of Wiley. You'd think that there'd be tons of Wiley stuff in it. Okay. Well, what ends up being in a bunch of folders in her papers is Wiley's own letters that didn't go into his own papers. I, I, I have to go backwards for just a second. Right. I'm seeing um, his, wife, his, his wife is literally half his age. Um, so, you know, when he was in his mid sixties, he married, uh, a 33, 33 year old suffragette. Um, and they were very happy. Um, but obviously his papers went to the library of Congress before hers did because she lived, you know, 30 years after he died, uh, another 30 years after he died, but included in her papers are some of the Wiley papers that didn't go into Wiley's papers. She weeded uh, them. Um, yes. And well, but one of the folders is a bunch of correspondence with his various girlfriends, but this is going back before he was married. So it's not mm-hmm. like he was cheating on her, but he kept his correspondence with his girlfriends. And the cartoon you're um, talking about came not from Wiley's papers. It came from Wiley's <laughs> wife's papers, which yeah. I just think is really I mean, I guess I think it's funny. Yeah. Um, and, and, but it's was, rep- and it's a and very he, good likeness. And it just proved the um, how much a lot of women really liked him. All the way back to Purdue. Um, he was all the way yeah. back to Purdue uh, yeah. and beyond, perhaps. Uh, we don't know. Um, but he's so here he is in Washington, D.C. He's surrounded by interesting people. He's gets to talk to them all the time. He's pioneering sugar beets. Uh, and in the background is a growing concern over the adulteration of food. Could you yes. fill, that, fill that out a bit? The best I know about that is the great Thoreau quote, which I think I found in a Sherlock Holmes story, that um, circumstantial evidence is much like trout and milk, um, which is hard to understand unless you realize that milk is often adulterated with water. And if you find a trout in milk, that might indicate that your milk has been watered down. 
let me try to do this um, in the most general way possible because I think it's important for understanding probably what will be the rest of this conversation. There are two kinds of adulteration um, in the early 20th century. There is sort of the traditional form of adulteration, which is you know, watering down milk uh, or putting sawdust in wheat, where you take something that's substantially less expensive and use it as filler. Uh, to try to stretch it out so that if you're a manufacturer, you can make more money that way. What, that, every her- that, what every heroin supplier does. That goes back centuries, right? And into all different forms of food. Um, but starting around 1880, uh, you get uh, a lot of uh, food additives uh, based on uh, coal tar research coming out of Germany. Um and that sounds horrible, right? and it can be, but it's not always horrible. So this new kind of adulteration um, that Wiley studies is whether these food additives are uh, harmful or hurtful to the people who consume them. And he's handling both kinds of adulteration research at the Department of Agriculture. But I think it's worth noting that he sort of begins with the old style adulteration, we were talking about honey and mm-hmm. water, right? Mm-hmm. That's one form of adulteration if you add the water to the honey rather than have it be there naturally. But then he becomes famous by studying the second kind of adulteration, which is whether something like borax or sodium benzoate uh, will hurt your health in the long term if you consume it in different kinds of processed or manufactured food. Now, I would add... If I'm a meat manufacturer, I'm adding. Why am I adding borax to my cuts of meat? Or borax or treating will keep them? it. Borax will uh, keep it fresh. Just okay. a few grains actually will keep meat fresh for an incredibly long amount of time. So it's in that sense, it's not adulteration in the sense of the milk, the milk, uh, the dairy putting water in the in the milk just to make it last longer. Needling the beer, I think, as they would call it, putting water in the beer, but trying to come up with a some means, however primitive they may seem to us, of preservation. It is a chemical preservative, correct? Yeah. Um, so this then ties in very much to his what made him famous, which is the Poison Squad, and that's and that's borax and the Poison Squad. So, uh, in fact, a previous book written about Wiley, which tended to take a lot of claims at face value, um, which you do not, um, was called the Poison Squad, and. Could you explain the nature of the, the, I mean, the very way the experiments were set up were bound to get column inches in the newspapers, and boy, did they ever. So I, let, let me be clear about this. There is a traditional way to look at Wiley, which I, I understand and sympathize with, which is that the Poison Squad experiment thrusts him to the front of um, American attention, and he becomes a champion for pure food. And he does succeed to some degree in purifying our food. And, you know, thank goodness he does. I I just simply take the position that there's a lot more to his life and his historical Mm -hmm. significance than the Poison Squad. Like like sugar beets. Yeah, like sugar beets and the other foods that we have and will probably continue to to talk about in terms Mm -hmm. of their effects on the food itself. Um, but the Poison Squad experiments is when he sort of gets thrust into the American consciousness. Uh, it is an experiment that he uh, arranges in the Department of Agriculture using uh, clerks as his subjects, where those clerks agree to eat nothing but food prepared by the Department of Agriculture, cooks he hired, and that, um, that food was spiked with different preservatives. So they would do borax for a few months, sodium benzoate for a few months after that. And uh, Wiley would study everything that went into them, <laughs> um, how much they ate, everything that came out of him in all various orifices <laughs> um, to see how much of the preservative passes through them. Uh, and we'll chart the effects upon their health. And people called it the poison squad because that's what the Washington Post nicknamed it because these foods were supposedly poisonous. And these additives, these food additives were supposedly poisonous. And these um, young men were risking life and limb by eating Dr. Wiley's food. Now, 
let how much borax was he putting in their meat? Was he putting as much as he detected in other in, in meats found in uh, commercially available? I mean, what was so uh, what the, the best way to put it is that he would put it much more borax than you would ever get. Uh, by just eating meat that had been preserved by borax with a normal diet. And I'll try. I'll try it this way. Um, yeah. He's started by trying to hide the preservatives in the food itself, but the experimenters figured out where the borax was, so then they had to take pills after that. Hmm. So it was, that's it's, kind of it's a, a lot of the preservative. It's much more than you would ever get on any of these preservatives that you tested. Um, then so what's the, uh, what's the point? It naturally. What's the point of the experiment? Yeah. I mean, it's, it just seems now it seems, it seems a little odd then that, you know, you're, you're, so you're getting three times what you would find in a regular, in a regular diet and say, well, this is proves that borax Borx is bad. Uh, then the, the manufacturer say, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't drink Roundup either. You know, I try to spray yes, it on things. So, but that, that just demonstrates all that you have a modern view of, of food and ingredients. Okay. Um, there is a threshold for things that are perfectly healthy that will be dangerous to you. I mean, think of the word poisonous. There are lots of things that are poisonous that you could have tiny little bits of Arsenic. and not even notice. Yeah, not even notice, let alone die from it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have huge amounts of it, it's going to have very difficult uh, ill effects on your body. Um, so Wiley, I mean, that's ultimately his failure as a scientist. He never quite understood the concept of thresholds. Hmm. He wanted pure food. And if he deemed something to be impure, then in order to protect the weakest Americans, he thought that it should be completely banned from uh, the food supply. So we um, that's really that's it, it's a fascinating point in the book. Um, so once he discovered something was bad in any dose, then right. it was bad in any dose. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's but, you have but, to stretch but, your head around it. But at the same time, let me let me jump around for a little bit. Yeah, uh, sure. He went on a huge campaign against Coca Cola and caffeine. Oh, let's 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 wait on that. Let's let's, let's get to that because that's that's the place. That's a great that's a great place to end on. I, I okay. To go, okay. All right. Yeah, we're gonna get to Coca Cola. Let's go to whiskey because uh, we talked about okay. this on the podcast before. Um, and, and I will put in the show notes, our, our previous conversation with a fascinating fellow who's a lawyer, commercial lawyer in Louisville, who at some point realized that much of American business law was somehow related to whiskey and boy, oh boy, this is the other side of that story. Your two podcasts kind of go together because Wiley is on the Washington end of that, uh, uh, not the, the bourbon producing end. Um, so Wiley likes his hard liquor he likes his bourbon. And there's a yeah. person, there's a, a real personal, he feels personally offended by the American whiskey industry in 1905. And boy, there's a lot to be offended by. So could you describe what American whiskey was like? <laughs> yeah, so this is really hard for me um, because I actually don't drink whiskey. Um, oh. So for in terms of like immersion in a science <laughs> and industry, I, I had to go pretty deep into this. Um, so, I mean, forgive me, oh, whiskey purists out there, if I overgeneralize here. Um, and, and actually, part of the problem is that modern whiskey and whiskey 100 years ago was very different. So understanding yeah. the, the touchstones can be very tough. But let me do, let me do this, uh, a very simple version. Um, basically, Harvey Wiley thought that the only real whiskey uh, was... Uh, Starts with barley, uh, is aged in wood barrels in Kentucky, and uh, sold at a very expensive price. Uh, sometime in the late 19th century, uh, a variety of innovators come up with something called rectified whiskey, um, which I'm not going to do the chemical explanation for, but on a commercial level, rectified whiskey is a shortcut. Uh, where you use chemicals to make something that can taste very much like whiskey, um, even though it's not going through the 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 aging process as has been staked out for the previous six or seven decades. Um, 
The rectified whiskey industry, however, is growing very rapidly because lots of Americans really like the fact that they can get something that will make them drunk quickly, very cheaply. And and some of them taste okay, I'm sure. They're carefully engineered for deliciousness or or whatever whatever they're doing in St. Louis to make their whiskey. Yep, 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 yep. Um, But there's this huge fight over what whiskey is. Wiley said essentially that under the Pure Food and Drug Act, that the only whiskey is what he says whiskey is, and all rectified whiskey makers must put the words, uh, this is imitation whiskey on their bottles. So this is, is, you you write this, to widely rectified whiskey was a form of deception. The traditional process of aging whiskey in barrels was natural, creating it faster was not. So there's a, we're going to get back to the Pure Food and the Pure Food and Drug Act in just a second. But there's a way in which, um, so Wiley doesn't have a concept of thresholds, uh, but there's also a way in which he's not judging it by any, what's in it. I mean, whether they put like carbolic acid to an unhealthy degree or whatever in the in the whiskey, or it's made yep. from, you know, uh, I don't know, the decomposed corpses of the, the poor of St. Louis or something like that. Um, but he's just worried about truth in advertising. I mean, yep. okay, that's not yep. it's not chemistry, is it necessarily? I mean, well, it, there becomes an argument which he loses because it's a, just a terrible argument. He then he ends up arguing that rectified whiskey is bad for your health, but regular whiskey is okay. Straight whiskey is okay, mm-hmm. which is which is insane, right? And straight whiskey is, you know, also bad for your health <laughs> because it, it's you know high proof alcohol. Um, but he gets sort of in, in his defense of natural and in an effort to attract attention by arguing about health rather than deception, uh, he just gets tied up in knots arguing about whiskey. And eventually it has to be all sorted out by William Howard Taft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we get, listen, if you get a, see the link in the show notes, to the previous podcast, we get to that extremely important moment in the life of drinkers in America. Um, where you where where Taft cuts the knot, um, but no. you you point out that um, you know we, we've got people now making whiskey from oats, triticale, quinoa, and millet, and Wiley would find these adulterations because they're not made from barley and corn, essentially. Yeah, and then he's against blended as well. Yeah, he um, is. So it's just, he just thought there was one way to make whiskey and everything else is varying degrees of fake. So let's talk about the Pure Food and Drug Act. Uh, yes. What What is it? If we have an, an, a knowledge of it from high school, it's, we know it came about because Sinclair Lewis wrote a book about a guy falling into a sausage machine in Chicago. Upton Sinclair. Uh, it's Upton Sinclair. Sinclair Lewis. Yeah. See, this is, I'm giving you what high school students think right yeah. there. Sinclair <laughs> Lewis, right. I may repeat this, who ran for governor of California later as a progressive candidate. He wrote a book called The Jungle about a guy being ground into sausage and everyone ate him. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt became president. Uh, like so that. there are, there are actually there are two acts that are passed on the, and take effect on the same day, the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle is sort of the inspiration for the Meat Inspection Act. But the fact that there's all this awful stuff in meat is sort of what pushes the longer campaign for a Pure Food and Drug Act over the finish line and through Congress. So those two acts together are really the first important national legislation of the progressive era. And Harvey Wiley uh, helped push the Pure Food and Drug Act over the finish line uh, through the Poison Squad experiments. It is the general public fear of adulteration and uh more specifically, the health effects of chemicals that create the environment in which um, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle (laughs) gets both of those pieces of legislation uh, through. And that's important, uh, but it's not the be-all and end-all of Wiley's career. And I actually think the battle over the enforcement of the Pure Food and Drug Act is more interesting because Wiley, as uh, head of what's then the Division of Chemistry, 
-hmm. No, it's the Bureau of Chemistry yeah, right. at the Department of Agriculture. I'm glad you made that mistake because I could never keep that straight in your book, I, Bureau I, Division. I, I, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I hit it when it changes. It changes right, right after 1900. Um, I mean, it all is eventually going to become the Food and Drug Administration anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want the modern antecedent, you can just think about it that way. He is in charge, not exclusively, but he has a major role in enforcing that act. And that's where he tries to impose his views of what natural food is on a wide variety of industries and to varying degrees of success, sometimes very well and sometimes not. Now, we should say he's doing this through, as I said in the intro, by developing the greatest political machine in the country. I mean, and Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he, he would think that he would be a, an expert observer of that. Um, Wiley is um, whatever whatever his failings in certain areas of chemistry, um, he is a hell of a pu publicist. Could yep. you describe um, how that works? Because I, I'm still don't not, not sure that I understand it. So Wiley was very good at attracting attention. Um, so when he, uh, just for instance, in testimony uh, leading up to the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act, uh, he brought a whole bunch of test tubes and liquids into Congress and made rectified whiskey while sitting in the witness chair. It's <laughs> excellent. This, this is the sort of thing that gets headlines. Yeah. Um, and so he appears in uh, papers all over the country um, basically every day for about 10 years talking about some aspect of pure food. Uh, to somebody because he spent a lot of his he spent a lot more time talking to reporters than he did in the chemistry lab by the end of his career, and because of that, he gets lots of attention. I mean, we talked about him going out to banquets. A lot of the times, you know, the banquet is preceded by a speech, and there are reporters there who will report on the speech, and that just makes him more famous. Mm -hmm. uh, he would um, at the Poison Squad experiments. He would give out little bits of the research before it's published mm -hmm. saying this is what we found and this is how difficult it was for uh, the boys who were having this substance uh and we just know this because we've already seen it mm -hmm. and so i'm very worried about sodium benzoate for that reason and people would you know run wiley's statement before the paper came out and the paper did not always hold out up to scientific scrutiny. Wow. That sounds so familiar. Yeah, it's it's so it's 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 just interesting. I, I mean you look very closely at the stuff that he studied during the poison squad experiments. Uh they include borax and sodium benzoate. Um these are still in the American food supply. And on one level, it's a tragedy. But a lot of research, he's against saccharin as well. Mm -hmm. um, and these are like very controversial substances. Um, but, you know, repeated efforts to test them for health going on for decades after Wiley's death uh, have shown no long-term ill effects for consuming small amounts of it. Uh, but he was just raising up a huge stink about all these substances. And it it's not reflected in the law, but it is reflected in Americans' attitudes towards what they eat. Absolutely. Like, you know, we don't want to eat saccharin. Saccharin sounds really awful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a coal tar derivative that ends up being sweet. Who wants to eat that? But I mean, there's probably no more studied sub substance on earth during the 20th century. No, nah, that's not probably a little strong. <laughs> Certainly there's, there's no more studied sweetener no. on earth during the 20th century than saccharin. And it is perfectly acceptable in the United, in the U S diet. What's happened is that other more complicated sweeteners have replaced it. So we don't hear a lot about saccharin, but saccharin was a huge breakthrough in its day. Mm -hmm. Really good for diabetics mm -hmm. too. Um, yeah. Uh, just a, a huge, a huge leap forward at the time. However, just to get really complicated here, um, saccharin was also an adulterant. Yeah, <laughs> you would put it in a, a canned fruit that wasn't really particularly good, so that it would taste sweeter than you thought it was. Um, so, you know, it's not just the substance itself, whether it's healthy or not. It, it all depends on how it's used. And it's also, I mean, for Wiley, it's deceptive, right? Right. 
That's that's kind of the bad the bad thing about saccharin is it kind of acts like sugar, but it's not really sugar. There's a transition in his career that I tried to write about across all substances where his normal way of thinking is you shouldn't put this in food. It's deceptive. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, well, we like it anyway. We're going to still going to eat it. And then he'll go back to the same substance and say, you shouldn't put it in food. It'll harm your health over the long term. Well, is it, does that bring us to Coca-Cola? I mean, is that, it are, does. Okay. Um, let's talk about Coca-Cola. Cause this, <laughs> this is like on his honeymoon, he goes to Chattanooga, Tennessee, curious choice, but he has to be in court. Um, and he's, he is, is Harvey Wiley versus Coca-Cola. I mean, this is the cage match of the century. This is, this Harvey is Wiley, the- Harvey Wiley convinced the justice department to sue Coca-Cola under the terms of the pure food and drug act, arguing that caffeine was an adulterant <laughs> and he compared it, particularly when you give it to children, he compared Coca-Cola to, um, cocaine or heroin and you know it's just it's a crazy argument because there's more caffeine in coffee and tea both of which harvey wiley consumed himself uh but because it doesn't belong i mean really to harvey wiley coca-cola is just a a frankenstein monster Mm -hmm. this thing that just simply doesn't exist in nature and now everybody's drinking it but because it's unnatural, it's somehow bad. While the natural caffeine that you find in in tea or coffee is somehow okay, and that that's the sum of it. I mean, this is that's that's the sum of that's the sum of his argument. Um, the weird thing is, in the long term, um, not in the initial while he's still working for the government, while he loses, but ultimately the United States Supreme Court backs up Wiley's position under the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, and Coca-Cola settles with the government in 1919 over its formula, and it drastically cuts the amount of caffeine in Coca-Cola. I think it was by two-thirds, if memory serves me well, the stats mm-hmm. in the book, uh, and agrees to stop marketing it, marketing it to children, which it continues to not do until 1986. <laughs> and that's because of Harvey Wiley. But Harvey Wiley wanted to see Coca-Cola eradicated from the face of the earth. So we considered it a terrible loss. But it's we just talked about um, uh, not that long ago. We talked about the the radium infused soft drink, Radiothor, uh, which you know gets rid of your tiredness, and I, I would imagine <laughs> a lot of other things. Seven um, Up is like a lithium. There was that a lithium. There was like a lithium phosphate or something like that. I mean, these are all they all have something like that. They're all they all begin in drugstores um, as. Mm as beverages to as alternatives to alcohol oddly enough uh, and which will be good for you and i i have a chapter on drugs yes, Wiley you was not a um a pharmaceutical chemist but he was deeply involved in the purity of drugs and there i think his most important legacy is he managed to convince um doctors to stop prescribing whiskey as medicine hmm. So medical medicinal whiskey just goes out the window uh, almost entirely because of Harvey Wiley. So that's um, we we've been kind of hard on him so for so far, uh, but he must have been right about something. Can we come he up? Was. Can we come up with one he or was. two things? Can you can you mention one or two things he was right about? Well, medicinal whiskey, whiskey is sure. a good one. Another one is formaldehyde. Okay, um, that, that that is, oh, that's a, a good one. Tell about tell about formaldehyde. That's a poison squad experiment. Um, you know, like. One or two drops of formaldehyde will keep milk fresh for a really long time. Uh, it will also do horrible things to children. Um, and so when he began the poison squad experiment on formaldehyde, it's not as if there's a pro-formaldehyde lobby. <laughs> but he ended up stopping the experiment after a few days because the effects on people were so awful. And the government, uh, this is after the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act, um, the government just bans formaldehyde as an additive to everything almost immediately thereafter. He's absolutely right about that. Um, one of my favorites, um, he was against smoking long before that was hip. Mm-hmm. It's like him and Henry Ford were against smoking. Um, he was more than occasionally right, um, but he's also horribly wrong. Um, it's just it's a really interesting mix. I uh, the, And there's some times where he just seems to be slightly – insane like the baldness thing uh, yeah could you describe yeah, that well, I, I i that made me laugh so hard 
Uh, Harvey Wiley believed that driving around Washington in an open car uh, prevented bald, his baldness, even though he was basically bald as in most of his life. Yeah, it, he was. You, you can see this. There's. It's the. I think that there's someone. Uh, Jay Chupress put a picture of him right where there was, he was talking about his baldness. He is, or he has a, he looks like, uh, someone said he looks like an archbishop. He does look like, I, I could see him as an archdeacon in the Anglican church with gaiters. Uh, I would say an Anglo Catholic. Uh, I could see him in purple. Um, he has like a tonsure, a nat- sort of natural monastic tonsure, however. Um, and, but he believed, oh, he said his diet, his pure food diet was leading to him regaining his hair. As you can see, he says, and you, you can't see it. You can't see it at all. He had some very, very weird ideas. During World War One. he went around claiming that we should all eat cats and dogs uh, in order to save food for the war effort. And of course, that never proved to be necessary. <laughs> they did. A lot of people did kill their cats and dogs in both wars, I think, to, so that they weren't a drain on the economy. Just, um, he uh, he is also the second person to own a car in Washington D.C. and the first person the first to, have an to have an accident. How yeah. the hell did you find that out? Did you were you going through the DMV record? How did you find no, that? No, it, it, it was in his papers. It was, okay. Yeah. It was in his paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, eventually, he grows disgusted uh, with. Uh, the undermining of his authority as he sees it by the Taft administration. So it's, it's very much part of the progressive moment. I mean, this is the reason why, uh, on a larger reason, that, that Teddy Roosevelt will run again in 1912. Uh, Wiley leaves, and where did that, drum roll, where does, where does he get a job? Good housekeeping, uh, which pays him twice as much money as he made as a government official. And this is, uh, this was, he- run a- a column and it is the beginning of the good housekeeping seal of approval, which was a thing even when I was a child, uh, was still had power. So this is, he is like consumer reports before consumer reports is the only thing we can explain to people. He's he's running a chemistry lab for good housekeeping that looks at various uh, foods and consumer goods and determines whether they're safe and effective. Mm -hmm. And he continues. And now he actually, he's not just sort of, using other people's printing press, he has access to his own. And he's writing a column um, and does some articles as well. He's on the, he's Chautauqua, still- on the Chautauqua circuit, which is immensely influential. Yes. Yeah, he speaks about pure food on the Chautauqua circuit for about 10 years before he gets uh, too old to travel much. Um, he remains very, very famous throughout the, the 20s. Not quite as famous as when he worked for the government, but uh, you, know, you put the words Dr. Wiley in the headline of a newspaper in those years, and everybody knew who you were talking about. Right. Um, you, uh, you write, you conclude, last sentences. He says, uh, Wiley's, to see Harvey Wiley's primary legacy is the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, not only does an injustice to every other pure food advocate of that era but ignores the chemist's extraordinary impact on the manufacture and marketing of foodstuffs of all kinds. Wiley was a significant figure in the history of American eating because of his considerable influence on what we eat and how we think about food in general. The fruits of his efforts confront us every day at the supermarkets and on our plates. So you make this point elsewhere in the book. Here is this very intimate act of eating. Uh, an act of sociability, of hospitality, of family. It's one of the most important things we do. Um, But Wiley actually transforms that. It's a very impressive legacy in that way because he gets us thinking, he gets, we add even more things to it. And we've added them and kept them even as, and this is very interesting, as the sociability and intimacy of eating has somewhat declined, (laughs) as you might have noticed. And where it's less associated with family life, it's less associated with friendship, it's less associated with communal uh, bonding. It's less associated, and, and so on. We've now got convenience, but also we've retained a lot of what Wiley has given us. Which is fear, right? The, the title is the title for a reason. It's the chemistry of fear. He's using chemistry to scare people about what they eat. Sometimes it's completely appropriate, and sometimes it's not. And so what I did is I sort of, did a biography in food where you look at all the different controversies that he was engaged in 
and you can see that legacy both for good and for bad, depending on which chapter you happen to be reading. Well, my guest today has been Jonathan Reese. He's the author most recently of The Chemistry of Fear, Harvey Wiley's Fight for Pure Food. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us. I hope to talk to you again when you come out with a book about fish. I'm working on fish now. Uh, look forward to talking to you when it's ready. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.